You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, and welcome to Explorers. Today we continue our multi-part series on one of the legends of exploration, Christopher Columbus. In the last part of our series, Columbus had concluded one of the great voyages of discovery ever recorded. He had discovered, or rediscovered is probably a better term, the Americas. The Atlantic Ocean was no longer a big blank on the world's maps. So let us take stock of Columbus's accomplishments and his situation. Columbus had set out in 1492 searching for a trade route to Asia. He had found the Caribbean instead, although he thought he had reached Asia. It is a belief that he would die with. In reality, he had landed in the Bahamas and had explored Cuba and Hispaniola. Sailing for the King and Queen of Spain, Columbus's voyage had been a qualified success. He had not found a trade route to Asia, but he had found something, and that something was very intriguing to Ferdinand and Isabella. This new world, according to Columbus, had potential. There were hints of gold, and the lands Columbus described were fertile, populous, and ripe for colonization. The people were simple and docile, and Columbus saw them as easily governed, not to mention excellent candidates to join the Christian faith. To start this colonization process, Columbus had left 39 men at a small fort he had built on the northern shore of Hispaniola. The plan was to have the native Indians, whom Columbus had left on good terms with, bring gold to the fort in exchange for European goods. The men at the fort would collect the treasure, as well as find the island's gold mines, and anything else of value. By establishing this small fort, which was called La Navidad, Columbus had basically forced the hands of Isabella and Ferdinand. I mean, of course he had to go back. He had men in a fledgling colony on the other side of the ocean. He had to finish this great enterprise that he had started. Columbus saw this colony as the first building block of a vast commercial enterprise. And let's remember that he, Columbus, was the boss. And this was because of his agreement with the Spanish crown. He was the governor of any lands that he discovered. In fact, Columbus had seen this sort of operation before, with the Portuguese in West Africa. They had set up trading posts along the West African coast, and were making lots and lots of cash dealing in things such as gold and ivory and slaves. Columbus hoped to duplicate that success, with him running the burgeoning operation. Now, speaking of Portugal, King John II was not thrilled to hear about Columbus's voyage. This new discovery threatened any potential Portuguese trade route to Asia, and the Portuguese crown made noise that Columbus's discoveries had violated the 1479 Treaty of Alcacovas, which limited Spanish access to lands south of the Canary Islands. 
Now, Columbus's voyage had been done all within the framework of the treaty, but the Portuguese weren't so sure. Had Columbus crossed into their territory? In response to all these rumblings, Pope Alexander VI was selected to mediate the dispute. Not an uncommon thing, as the church did this sort of thing all the time during this era. So, Pope Alexander would issue several papal bulls, or edicts, in 1493, attempting to clarify the dispute. The Pope's rulings established a new demarcation point, this one running north to south. The Treaty of Alcacoves had only set an east-west line. This new demarcation point was north-south and limited the Portuguese to lands 100 leagues, or about 345 miles, west of the Azores, which are off the coast of Spain and Portugal. This declaration would establish the parameters for what would be the Treaty of Tordesillas, which would be signed by Spain and Portugal in 1494. The details of the treaty would later be tweaked, but it essentially gave Portugal the area that is now Brazil, and legitimized Spain's discoveries in the Caribbean. However, that treaty was still in the future. In 1493, King John of Portugal was not thrilled by this new papal bull. There was even talk of war between the two nations over these new discoveries. Amid all of this, Columbus urged his monarchs to undertake a second mission to the New World, and quickly. He needed to get back to his men on Hispaniola, plus he wanted to beat the Portuguese to the region should they elect to mount an expedition of their own, something that was always a threat, as Portugal was the preeminent naval power in Western Europe. Also, Columbus did not want the Pope issuing any new rulings that could potentially stop him from going back to the Americas. So, understanding a need for urgency, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella agreed with Columbus. On May 20, 1493, less than three months since returning from his first voyage, Columbus was appointed Captain General of a second expedition to the New World. He received the title of Viceroy and Admiral of the Ocean Sea and the Indies, and he now styled himself as Don Christopher Columbus. He would also receive one-eighth of all wealth gathered in these new lands, such as gold and pearls. Not a bad gig if you can get it. The Spanish crown would go all out for this new expedition, authorizing a force of 17 ships and over 1,200 men. This new voyage was about establishing a legitimate commercial enterprise in the lands that Columbus had found. There was little talk of trading with the Grand Khan or visiting the great cities of China. Sure, Columbus was to find out exactly where he was in relation to Asia, but the primary reason for this venture was to build on Columbus's first voyage. Thus, money was raised for the new expedition. Juan Rodriguez de Fonseca, a priest, was tapped to oversee much of the fleet's preparations. It was the beginning of a long career for Fonseca, as he would go on to oversee Spanish colonization efforts for more than 25 years. Amongst the directives from the Spanish crown were specific orders with regard to the native peoples. They were to be treated fairly. The Spanish were ordered not to steal from them or abuse them, and they were to be paid equitably for goods that they traded to the Spanish. Also, many priests were sent on the voyage, and the conversion of the Indians to the Catholic faith was a high priority. Now, these are all wonderful goals, but let us be honest, they were not realistic. The vast majority of the Spanish forces were there to acquire riches. The native peoples, in the eyes of the Europeans, were simple tools, or commodities, to accomplish that end. In addition to the directives regarding the natives, Columbus was ordered to establish a customs house, a place to store all the goods that were being brought to the New World, as well as items being readied for shipment back to Spain. It was a setup that the Portuguese had used to great effect in Africa. They would build a fortified location, and goods would flow to the site, purchased with items that the natives desired, such as beads, cloth, knives, and other metal goods. 
As for the fleet, amongst the 17 vessels, there were three carracks and 12 caravels. The type of the remaining two ships was not recorded. One of the 17 ships was Nina, the intrepid caravel that had brought Columbus back to Spain a few months before. She had been refitted and renamed, now called Santa Clara. Columbus would name his command ship, one of the Carracks, Santa Maria, to honor the vessel that had taken him across the ocean the previous year. Now, for Columbus's new expedition, he would have no shortage of sailors. Word of his exploits had spread through Spain, and men flocked to Cadiz for a chance to be amongst the next wave of men to go to the New World. For money, there was an opportunity of a lifetime. As noted, there would be over 1,200 men in the fleet. There were priests and soldiers and craftsmen and anyone and anything needed for this grand endeavor. There would also be horses, which were unknown in the Americas at this time. Many of these men in the expedition saw a chance to make a fortune. Amongst the numbers were many hidalgos, landless nobles, rich in heritage and name, but poor in cash and land. This new expedition and the lands touted by Columbus were exactly what they were looking for, a chance for fame and fortune. So here are some of the more interesting people who were part of this second expedition. First, there was Pedro de las Casas, the father of Bartolomé de las Casas, who would become an influential priest who championed the cause of the native peoples in the Americas. He would later write scathingly of Columbus's treatment of the indigenous people, much of the information gathered from his father's own accounts. A second notable member of the expedition was one of the fleet's chart makers, Juan de la Cosa. De la Cosa had been the owner and master of the original Santa Maria. In addition to this second voyage, he would also accompany Columbus on his third expedition. De la Cosa would make a chart in 1500 that is the oldest European map that shows the New World. It still exists today in a museum in Madrid, all of which I find kind of cool. A third member of the fleet's complement was Giacomo Columbus, also known as Diego. Diego was Columbus's younger brother and would be a trusted ally on the voyage. And finally, a couple of other notable expedition members were Juan Ponce de Leon and Alonso de Ojeda, both soldiers. They would be among the first conquistadors in the New World. Ponce de Leon would go on to explore Florida and, according to legend, go in search of the Fountain of Youth. We will do a podcast on the man at some point in this series. Alonso de Ojeda would be a key soldier for Columbus during this first expedition and go on to be an important early figure in the exploration of South America. He played a key role in our earlier podcast on Vasco Nunez de Balboa. I also want to mention that there were several Taino Indians who were part of Columbus's fleet. They had been brought to Spain earlier in the year and were now returning to their homes and would serve as interpreters for the fleet. So, in the summer of 1493, Columbus would work feverishly to outfit his latest expedition to the mysterious western lands. Columbus himself was 42 years old and he was at the height of his glory. He was the golden boy of Europe, the man who had crossed the Atlantic and returned to tell the tale. And before we set off across the ocean a second time with Columbus, I do want to reiterate a few things about our Genoese explorer. His accomplishment the previous year was epic in nature, although no one really understood just how important his discoveries were. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of just what he had done. Remember, mariners in Europe rarely sailed into the vastness of an ocean. They might cross the Mediterranean or go down the coast of Africa, but they were not venturing into nothing. It took courage and confidence, and maybe a little bit of crazy, to do such a thing. And those were qualities Columbus possessed, not to mention his skills as a navigator. Also, regarding Columbus, despite his success, he could be an immensely frustrating individual. 
He was paranoid and prickly, quick to take offense, and often racked by anxiety and doubts. He could also be immensely petty and outright indifferent to the struggles of others, especially when it came to honors and money. Anyhow, let us get on with the show. Columbus and his 17-ship fleet would depart from Cadiz, Spain, on September 24, 1493, to great fanfare. Columbus would follow the same route as before, heading for the Canary Islands, which he would reach on October 2nd. The fleet would take on supplies and make final repairs before setting out on October 13th. As noted earlier, there were 17 ships and over 1,200 men. As before, Columbus rode the trade winds west, making good time. The fleet ran into a fierce storm on October 24th, but they would ride out the squall without any losses. The fleet would sight land on November 3rd, 1493. Columbus had made the crossing in just 20 days. The first crossing had taken almost twice that. However, the fleet had not sailed as far as the previous expedition. Remember, navigation was still a pretty dicey thing at this time in history, combining the use of the compass in celestial navigation, but these early explorers didn't understand the concept of true north versus magnetic north, and it made for some confusing calculations. Thankfully, Columbus was a naturally intuitive mariner. Time and time again, he will show his skills. However, he wasn't perfect, just like his navigation tools. The expedition ended up about five to 600 miles southwest of the previous voyage's landfall, sighting land in what we know today as the Leeward Islands, a group of islands situated where the northeastern Caribbean Sea meets the western Atlantic Ocean. These islands include, from northwest to southwest, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Antigua, Guadalupe, and many others. The specific island that the fleet sighted was modern-day Dominica, which was the southernmost of the Leeward Islands. The voyage across the Atlantic had covered about 2,500 miles, which explains the short crossing time of just 20 days. The initial crossing had been more than 3,000 miles. Columbus would not actually stop at Dominica due to the lack of anchorage, but he would go ashore at another nearby island, Marie Galant, which is a small island just north of Dominica and south of Guadalupe. By the way, if you want to see all of these places, as well as Columbus's route, just go to explorerspodcast.com and I have posted a map. So, after his initial landing on Marie Galant, Columbus would lead the fleet a bit north, to a much bigger island, Guadalupe. However, there was a significant difference in this expedition compared to the previous year's venture, and that was the native peoples. No longer would the Indians come out and greet the fleet and marvel at the Europeans. Instead, they fled to the interior of the island and hid. Once ashore on Guadalupe, Columbus's men found ominous signs, including abandoned villages and piles of bones. They would eventually find people, but they were mostly women and children, and many of the male children had been castrated. So where were the men? Well, it seems that the island had been attacked by the region's terrors, the Caribs. The Caribs were a warlike people that populated many of the islands. They were described as having long hair and sporting many, many tattoos. They were also known to be skilled boat builders and sailors, allowing them to range throughout the Caribbean. Their fierceness was legendary, and the Cribs were dreaded by the Taino Indians and the other indigenous peoples. The Cribs were described by early Europeans as cannibals. In fact, the word cannibal derives from a corruption of their name. However, there is mixed evidence that they actually ate their victims. No matter, the mere mention of the Cribs terrified the other natives of the region. Another thing that Columbus reportedly discovered on Guadalupe was a fragment of a European ship. Columbus feared that it was from the original Santa Maria, which had sank hundreds of miles from here, and the wreck salvaged to build the fort of La Navidad. Whether it was from the Santa Maria, we don't know, but Columbus grew concerned about the fate of the men at the small fort. 
On Guadalupe, the fleet would replenish supplies. Scouts were sent to the interior of the island to search out the natives and uh, look for signs of gold. One of the groups would become lost and would wander the island for several days before finding their way back to the fleet. Once the ships had brought on food and water and his soldiers had returned, Columbus would depart Guadalupe on November 10th. He would undertake an island-hopping strategy, sailing northwest up the chain of islands, eventually to Puerto Rico and then Hispaniola. His fleet would gather food and water as they went. Columbus would also take on locals as guides, as a way to reach his next destination. Along the way, the fleet would find other signs of the dreaded Caribs. Women and children would come to the European ships and beg for them to take them with them. And while some of the natives were brought onto the ship to act as servants, it was a dangerous precedent as women would eventually be forced into sexual servitude. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. On November 14th, a scouting party from the fleet would encounter the Caribs for the first time. The Spanish would find the Caribs fierce and unrelenting, with both men and women taking part in combat. Despite their ferocity, the Caribs were no match for European steel and gunpowder, and they were quickly defeated. However, the Caribs did use poison arrows, and I have read some sources that indicate one of the Spaniards would die from such a wound. It would be the first of many such fatalities. During some of the encounters with the Caribs, Columbus would take prisoners, including women. Unlike the previous expedition, these savages, which is how the Europeans viewed the Caribs, would not be treated kindly. A childhood friend of Columbus, who was part of the fleet, would later write this, quote, while I was in the boat, I captured a very beautiful Carib woman, whom the said Lord Admiral gave to me. When I had taken her to my cabin, she was naked, as was their custom. I was filled with a desire to take my pleasure with her and attempted to satisfy my desire. She was unwilling and so treated me with her nails that I wish I had never begun. But, to cut a long story short, I then took a piece of rope and whipped her soundly, and she let forth such incredible screams that you would not have believed your ears." Eventually we came to such terms, I assure you, that you would have thought that she had been brought up in a school for whores. End quote. It is a brutal and shameful description, but something that was all too common for the era, and not just in the New World. On November 22, 1493, the fleet would reach Hispaniola after passing along the southern coast of Puerto Rico, the latter island populated by the Caribs. On November 28, the fleet would approach the fort of La Navidad, Several miles out, cannons were fired, a way to alert the fort that the fleet was approaching. But there was no reply, and Columbus suspected the worst. And the next morning, his fears would be confirmed. Ferdinand Columbus, Christopher's son, would later write a description of what was found at La Navidad, based upon his father's recollections. Quote, Nothing remained of the houses except some smashed chests and other such wreckage as one sees in a land that has been devastated and put to the sack. End quote. La Navidad had been destroyed, burned to the ground. There was no sign of life. So what had happened to the fort, 
and the 39 Spaniards who had been left there. Well, the rotting corpses of 10 or 12 Spaniards would be found nearby. Their bodies had been mutilated. They had been there for weeks, if not months. In the last podcast, we talked about a man named Guacan Nagari. He was a local cacica who controlled much of the area around the fort. Columbus would be greeted by Guacan Nagari's cousin, and later by Guacan Nagari himself, and from then he would learn the fate of the fortress. Columbus was told that a few of the Europeans had died as a result of illness, but that most of the men had been murdered by some of the island's other cacicas, in particular a man named Conabo. Columbus was told that the Spanish had angered the local Indians, leading to the confrontation. The Spaniards took women to be servants and mistresses, and some of the men in the fort reportedly had taken three and four native women as if starting a harem. When the Indians protested, the Spanish ignored them or insulted and abused them. By doing such things, the Spanish had incited the Indians. The Cacica Conabo first attacked a group of about a dozen Spaniards while they were out searching for the gold mines of the islands. Conabo had then marched on La Navidad and attacked at night, setting the fort afire. Many of the Spanish would flee into the ocean, only to drown. Others were killed by the fire or in the fighting. None survived. The local cacica, Guacan Nagari, said that he had tried to protect the Spanish, but he had not been able to stop the slaughter. He showed Columbus a minor wound, claiming it had happened in the fighting. As you would expect, Columbus was crushed by this. He had expected to find a robust fort filled with gold that had been collected over the past ten months. Of course, the first thing Columbus ordered was that the ruins of the fort were to be searched, hoping to find a buried cache of gold, but he would be out of luck. Now, Columbus was suspicious of the cacica Guacanagari, but he accepted the man's explanations about the destruction of La Navidad. It was easy for Columbus to believe that his men had been caught up in lust and greed in this tropical paradise, free from all rules and constraints. Columbus felt a lack of religion had been a key to their downfall. Also, one of the reasons Columbus was keen to accept the word of the Kasika Guacanagari was that the man brought gold to Columbus. Nothing got Columbus's attention like gold. That was his mission, after all, to find wealth. However, despite the outward friendliness of Guacanagari, there was a rift between the Europeans and the natives. The relationship between the newcomers and the indigenous peoples may have started out as friendly, but it quickly soured when lust and arrogance and greed and hedonism took over. This mixing of two very different cultures was a toxic formula. You had men stranded away from home, no women, no family, no rules. They had superior weapons and believed themselves to be superior. Something was going to break, and that usually led to violence. One thing I want to do is expand a little bit on something that I mentioned earlier, and that is culture. A key contributing factor to the deterioration of the European and Native relations was the simple fact that Columbus and the Spanish didn't see these people as having a culture. They were savages. Just look at what they had. Pretty much nothing, at least in the eyes of the Europeans. But the Taino Indians' world was much more complex than the Europeans ever imagined, and Columbus and his men were upsetting that world, literally ripping it apart at the seams. It's one thing to have a cool foreign visitor bringing neat stuff to you, it's another to have them taking over your land, women, and religion. That just never goes over well. So, remember that earlier Columbus had taken on board the ships some natives as servants. Well, some of these people, mostly women, were disenchanted with their treatment. At this time, a group of eight natives jumped ship, reportedly swimming three miles to the shore in order to escape the Spanish. The next day, when Columbus went in search of the women, he would find that they had fled to Guacan Nagari. 
the cacica and the woman had taken off into the interior of Hispaniola. So here, Columbus's supposed native ally was now gone, and the other native chiefs were in open conflict with him. Things weren't exactly going great. But as we have seen, let's remember that this is Christopher Columbus. He is not going to back down. Determined to keep to his mission, Columbus set out to establish a colony in this land. He would throw off the failure at La Navidad and look to build something grander and more secure. The location of the previous fort had been, he realized, a poor choice. The land was wet and unhealthy, food was not easily obtained, and there was no stone for constructing buildings. Columbus would eventually settle on a location east of La Navidad, a large harbor at the mouth of a deep river, with, quote, space enough for 20,000 inhabitants to plant grain and vegetables and construct buildings, end quote. But the best thing about the location was, he was told, it was near the island's gold mines. This new settlement would be called La Isabella, in honor of the Queen of Spain. Columbus was ambitious in his designs, imagining a vibrant port with a great church. He envisioned the building of a great empire, with him running it all from the royal palace he would construct. The construction of the new settlement would begin on December 11, 1493, and last until March of the next year. It was a task that would consume Columbus. La Isabella would be formally founded on January 6, 1494, on the Feast of the Epiphany. A dozen priests dedicated the settlement in a makeshift church. It was the first Mass said in the New World. So one of the first things Columbus did was, in early January, was to send out scouting parties to the mining regions of Hispaniola, a mountainous area called Cebo. Cebo was filled with many dangers, including mudslides and floods, not to mention hostile natives. By January 20th, Alonso de Ojeda, one of the young conquistadors in the expedition, would return with several good-sized gold nuggets and promising reports of more gold in the mountains, whetting the Spanish appetite for the precious metal. So just when things were looking up, it's time for a minor disaster. It was here that the Spanish colony would be hit with an unknown illness. Within days, three to four hundred men in the fleet would be sick. Columbus blamed the sickness on the womanizing of the men, which he called, quote, widespread, end quote. Some point to syphilis, but it's unlikely the disease had broke out so quickly within the fleet. Whatever it was, it would cause manpower shortages and morale issues at a time when Columbus needed healthy bodies. In addition, Columbus himself had become ill, possibly from malaria and maybe arthritis. He would write that he had suffered from a paralysis and severe pains. The sickness may have contributed to bouts of depression and anxiety. On February 2, 1494, Columbus appointed Antonio de Torres to take 12 of the ships in the fleet and return to Spain. Columbus wisely saw the need to rotate his men back to Europe. The tropical environment was just not healthy for the Europeans, and he wanted the sick, as well as the disenchanted, sent home, and fresh bodies, plus supplies, sent back. And while Columbus would send news of the failure of La Navidad, he would also send something else, gold. Now, I have read conflicting accounts about exactly how much gold Columbus sent back. Some say very little, others say quite a lot. No matter, his goal was to convince his sponsors, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, that things were going just fine, despite the setbacks. The gold, he figured, would be enough to lure the king and queen, and any reluctant court bureaucrats, to get on board with his empire building. So, Antonio de Torres and his twelve ships would return to Cadiz on March 7, 1494, in addition to various plants and animals, plus gold, Torres brought him 26 native Indians. This is important, because Columbus would suggest that the natives offered a source of slaves, 
Again, he was looking at the economics of the expedition and trying to demonstrate how money could be made. Like the existing slave trade in Africa, Columbus saw dollar signs in the indigenous peoples. On an interesting note, Columbus suggested that he send the dreaded Carib captives back to Spain as a way to convert them to Christianity. Once they became civilized, I used air quotes there, they would come back to the region as evangelists for the faith. Such a suggestion was pretty ludicrous. The last thing the king and queen of Spain wanted was a bunch of supposed cannibals filling the docks of Spanish ports. The monarchs would send a note back to Columbus telling him to take care of the religious stuff in the New World. In his letters to the Spanish court, Columbus requested supplies be sent back to his fledgling settlement. The actual list still exists, which is kind of cool to see. There was wheat, barley, wine, beans, oil, bacon, nuts, onion, sugar, and other foodstuffs. He also requested livestock, clothing, gunpowder, weapons, and shoes. And the admiral didn't skimp for himself, asking for luxury items such as sweets, tablecloths, salt shakers, candlesticks, forks, scented water, ham, almonds, dates, and much more. So, as La Isabella was being built, Columbus would continue to send out scouting parties searching for gold. Alonso de Ojeda would come back from one of these missions with more stories of natives collecting gold from the streams in the mountains. Feeling sufficiently recovered from his latest illness, Columbus decided it was time for him to personally set out to find the source of the island's riches. Now, a quick side trip to talk a little bit about gold. It was the number one reason the Spanish were in the New World. They believed the lands were rich with gold. But in reality, gold in Hispaniola and other Caribbean islands was scarce and difficult to mine. It was a time-consuming and dangerous process. Yes, there was gold, but what the natives possessed was the easy stuff, small amounts that they found in streams. And let's understand that the natives didn't really care that much about gold. Yes, if they found it, that was great. But gold was ornamental and a luxury in their lives, not an essential. The truth is that there were no great veins of gold on the island, and there never would be. So in March, Columbus found himself sufficiently recovered from his illness and invigorated by the news brought by Ojeda, and he decided to personally set out into the interior of the island to see these golden lands. He would lead his brother, Diego, in charge of the construction of La Isabella. However, leaving the town worried Columbus. Many in the fleet were unhappy and grumbling as life had become difficult in the town. Columbus had worked the men hard. Punishment was swift and cruel, such as floggings. Also, illness was rampant as the tropical environment was taking its toll on the Europeans. Columbus would write disparagingly of many of the soldiers of fortune who had come on the expedition. These men had felt that gold would be brought to them in baskets, and they weren't willing to work to earn their share. Despite all of these concerns, on March 12, 1494, Columbus left La Isabella with a force of 400 soldiers. These were the healthiest and most able of the troops. Columbus's small army would march through the nearby plains and through the villages and into the mountains. He would sing the praises of the region, the soil, the rivers, the crops, and of course the gold he felt was in the streams and mines in the nearby mountains. Columbus would take his troops into the heart of the island to a region called Cebo. Here he felt he could find the gold mines as well as collect gold from the natives. To do this, he would need to construct another fort as protection for his men as well as the native laborers. This was, after all, the home of Canabo, the troublesome Casica who had destroyed La Navidad the previous year. The new fort would be named Santo Tomas. The natives at first were eager to deal with the Spanish. They brought gold, and in return they received bells and beads and other trinkets. Columbus reported that some of the nuggets brought to him were as big as walnuts. Now, much of this was an exaggeration. Sure, there were some decent-sized gold nuggets, 
but what was brought to the Spanish was relatively small. Still, Columbus imagined this as one of the first steps of his grand empire. Around April 1st, with the construction of Fort Santo Tomas well underway, Columbus would return to La Isabella. There, he would find the settlement on the verge of mutiny. A group of Spaniards, led by the fleet's comptroller, Bernal Diaz de Pias, had been spreading rumors and accusations against Columbus, building resentment against the admiral. The rumblings from the men stemmed from the months of rough living. Many of these men were sick and exhausted. The tropics were taking their toll. And for months, these men had been forced to build the new settlement, while morale plummeted and discipline crumbled. The accusations of Columbus were mostly false, but they also harbored small seeds of truth. Columbus was heavy-handed. He would threaten his men, he would deal out harsh punishments, and he would deny rations to sick men. This reputation is one that Columbus would, rightly so, develop. Ultimately, Columbus's return would quell any potential mutiny, but the great admiral was finding it much easier to discover a new world than it was to rule one. But no sooner had Columbus returned to La Isabella when he would find himself facing further trials, as word reached him about the threats from Canabo. The Casica was threatening to kill all the Christians on the island. Columbus did not take this threat lightly. Remember, Conabo had killed the entire garrison of La Navidad just a few months earlier. To deal directly with this threat, Columbus dispatched Alonso de Ojeda and a force of 400 men, as well as horses, to Fort Santo Tomas. It was, essentially, a pacification mission. We've talked a bit about Ojeda, and I think we should add a little bit more here. The man was young, about 26 years old. He was a Hidalgo, a nobleman, but lacking in means. At this stage of his life, he was considered a skilled swordsman and a good soldier. He had distinguished himself in the field in Europe, proving to be smart, resourceful, and quick to action when so many others hesitated. Sources portray Ojeda as a man of extremes. He was very religious, and while he could be gracious and generous, he also had a notorious temper and was known to be quick to anger and cruel and vindictive. He was also very loyal to Columbus, and the Admiral trusted him to get the job done when others had failed. Ojeda would march inland, and his force would eventually come upon a native army of over 2,000. The Indians, led by Conabo, were armed with javelins and slings. They had no armor. The result was a rout. As we have talked about before, Spanish steel overwhelmed the natives, whose weapons could not breach a breastplate. And there was certainly no answer to the ferocious war horses, which were trained to plow over men in combat. Ojeda would capture three of the Indian leaders, sending them to Columbus. But Ojeda was just getting started. As I said earlier, this was a pacification campaign. He was here to put on display the power of Spain. His men took what they wanted and did what they wanted. At one village, in front of the natives, Ojeda had a man's ears cut off, a punishment for not aiding the Spanish when fording a stream. And if you think Columbus was disappointed by Ojeda for his harsh actions, you would be wrong. The three Indian leaders sent by the conquistador to Columbus would be publicly beheaded in the main square of La Isabella. The message was, this island is ours and you are our subjects. If there was any hope of a peaceful coexistence between the Europeans and the natives, it was pretty much gone by this time. So, with the local natives routed, La Isabella under construction, and hopefully supplies heading from Spain, Columbus decided to do what he did best, sail. He still harbored the belief that China and Japan and the Spice Islands were nearby. He just had to go looking. To that end, on April 24, 1494, Columbus would take three of his remaining caravels and set sail west. His goal was to return to Cuba and then push onward and find the elusive Asian mainland. 
He would leave a ruling council in charge of La Isabella, headed by his brother Diego. They were to collect gold from the natives and bring order to the island. For Columbus, it was probably a liberating decision. He was now free from the day-to-day drudgery of running a colony. Also, he no doubt understood that he wasn't making anyone rich up to this point. He had found some new islands, but they were infested with the dreaded Caribs and showed no signs of gold. And on Hispaniola, he had found gold, but not a lot of it. His monarchs would want to see a return on their investment. Thus, if he could find Asia and establish a legitimate trading route to the Far East, well, that would make the king and queen of Spain very, very happy. So, as Columbus sails west, we will call that a wrap for this episode. There is still lots of stuff for Columbus to do on this second voyage, not to mention a third and fourth expedition. We hope you have enjoyed this continuing saga of Christopher Columbus. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.